All right, let's, uh, let's pray. We'll get started. Father, once again, we are grateful, Lord. Thank you for your goodness, and thank you for making yourself known to us, and thanks for the snow yesterday. Uh, what a treat that was, uh, especially for those of us that were not in it, but it was really, uh, it was really great. You can use the most, so I'm just grateful. I pray that you'd help us tonight. We have a lot of books to talk about, and um, uh, just a very interesting time in the history of your people, and so I pray that you would help us and guide us through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to talk about Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon since we didn't get to those last week. We're going to talk rather briefly about them. Um, if you don't have, if you weren't here last week, I actually have extra handouts for Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. The rest of them are back there. Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon are up here. Otherwise, if I put them back there, then, you know, people like Richard, he takes two copies. The, the one from last week, I'm just picking on you, and this week. So if you're missing one from last week, it's up here, okay? The... Um, Ecclesiastes is a very interesting book, and we have wrestled with what to do with it all along. Let me remind you of kind of where we are in the, the sequence, because it's been a while since we've looked at it. Um, Genesis 1 through 11 covers up through the period of Abraham, and uh, just want to remind you that this is not meant to be a timeline of what I think about science. This is... Uh, this is a timeline, 9,000, back to 9,000 B.C., of what we've discovered in archaeology. I'm not trying to be a scientist, and I'm not trying to make the decision for how old the earth is. I'm not trying to make a statement about that. I personally don't care how old the earth is, other than I'm interested as a human. It could be a million years old. It could be 10,000 years old. As a theologian, it doesn't matter to me. All right? So I do believe God created the earth. I don't know how he did it. Uh, other than what little tiny snippets we have, and I don't know how old the earth is. I have to rely on science for that. So this is not trying to make a statement of what I believe how old the earth is. This is just as far back as we could go. Because everything down here, for those of you that weren't here in the beginning, is kind of what was going on around the biblical story. So Genesis 1 through 11 covers up through the period of Abraham. Abraham starts in Genesis 12. And Genesis 1 through 11 is the story of God's creation and then the eventual... Um, Rebellion by us, humanity, and the, uh, what we call the fall, where everything gets kind of messed up. Then you have the Pentateuch, which is uh, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And also, this is not a statement of when these books were written. I'm not trying to argue for that. This is a statement of what they're covering, what period of time they're covering. So they could have been written much later and, and are covering an earlier period. I have no problem with that either. So this is not a statement on dating of the books. It's a statement on what they cover. So the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, hence the word penta there, reflects on uh, the whole um, from creation all the way through the uh, exodus into the desert. And it stops in Deuteronomy just as they're getting ready to go in the land, hence the land right here. So the first five books are actually like five chapters. They're, they're considered really one book, uh, and that's why I call it the Pentateuch, but there are five chapters. And the reason why they're divided into the five really is because that's what you can put on one scroll. And so we looked at those. Then you have, you have the, um, when you get into the land, we looked at Joshua. And then after Joshua, he was the leader right after Moses. After he left, after he died, the generation after Joshua turned away from the Lord, 
And uh, we had the period of the Judges, which was a period of great confusion and turmoil. And uh, the last verse of Judges explains it. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's kind of where they did it. So we looked at those cycles where they would, uh, God would punish them. He would send in the surrounding nation to um, take them captive. And they would be oppressed for so many years, anywhere from seven, six or seven to 40 years. They would finally cry out to the Lord and the, cry, and the Lord would send a judge to, to free them. And the cycle starts all over again. He would free them, the judge or she, biblical judge. And then as soon as uh, they were had, the Lord had restored their stability, they turned right around and started worshiping the Baals again, all the idols and the gods. And so God would send another country in. So every time he sent a nation in, when he raised a judge, they kind of annihilated that nation. So they're out of the picture. The next nation is up in there. So it shows how God uses the nations in world history to carry out his plan. And we're going to talk more about that tonight, actually. So you have judges. The last At the last period of the judges, you have Samuel stepping onto the scene. So we looked at First and Second Samuel last week. Samuel is the one that anointed Saul and then David before he died. But we stopped and looked at Ruth, and we stopped and looked at Job. And Job, I put here, is a question mark because um, we're not really sure. He actually has a lot of characteristics way back to the time of Abraham. So we're not really sure the period of uh Job, because he's, there's no temporal indicators to help us out. Very, very few. It's a story about suffering more than a story about where it fits into history. So I just stuck it there. Then we have Saul and David. So we looked at Psalms. We looked at First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles. That covers up to the period of David, roughly 1,000 B.C. And then last week we looked at Proverbs as well, uh, from you know the period of Solomon and several other people. Tonight we're going to look at Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. So Solomon is the last king before the uh, monarchy divides into two kingdoms. We're going to talk about that a little bit more tonight. And so Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, or probably I should have probably put that Song of Songs. Traditionally it's called Song of Solomon, but uh, we're not convinced that Solomon wrote it all. Uh, nor are we convinced that Solomon's the hero in the story. That, that was thinking for a long time. Um, it may be he's actually the... Um, antagonist in the story and uh, she is going after the woman may have been part of his harem but goes after another man and falls in love with another man so that may be a way to explain that we're not going to get into that level of detail other than it's a very interesting story and you should read it and um, very very graphic so let's say a word about Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes just the very title creates mystery it's the word uh, hevel which is <laughs> breath and it, we translate it vanity, emptiness, vainness. And his basic conclusion is uh, all of life is just vain. It's just vanity. It's a waste of time. It's worthless. That's what it amounts to. Hevel, the reason why I gave you that, I don't usually give you Hebrew or Greek terms, is because that's the name of Abel. Cain killed Abel. His name is Hevel. So Abel's name means he's just a breath and he's gone. What a waste of a breath. Another word. So his name is the name of this book that we call Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes comes from a Latin uh, derivation, not from a Hebrew derivation, which has something to do with a leader of perhaps an assembly. So whoever this preacher is, uh, Kohelet is a Hebrew word. Whoever the preacher is, is up there talking about this stuff of how worthless life is. And, um, and so that's where the name comes from. Same name as Abel. And it makes sense, you know, in, in, in the Semitic world, their names could change. 
That's very common. Remember Naomi and Ruth. Naomi means blessed one. And she comes back and they said, hey, is that Naomi? You've been gone for 30 years. And she goes, uh, my name is not Naomi anymore. My name is Mara, which means bitter because God has made me bitter because he took everything away from me. My husband, my sons, everything. I have nothing left. So just call me Mara. That means bitter. So they would change their names. I don't think uh, Nabal, which means fool. I don't think his mom gave birth to a little boy. He says, hey, let's call him fool, Nabal. They change the name in the story so that it represents his character. As you grew up and your character was established, then they would they would adjust your name to fit your character. Very di- foreign to our concept, our world. And so Abel, uh, you know, uh, the last thing that she heard from God, Eve, is that you're going to give birth to a son who's going to take care of this monster that just wrecked everything. So she gives birth to a son. What's she going to think? So she says, I've, been, I've, given, I've given birth to a son with the help of the Lord. So the Lord is blessing me with a son. When's it going to happen? Then she has a second son. What a shame that the first one kills the second one. <laughs> so she calls him Hevel. That's his name. Here and gone. That quick. And so Ecclesiastes is a story that means meaningless, meaningless. In fact, that's captured in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I love it. I love this book. In there you find such wonderful little treasures as money is the answer to everything. Some of my favorite verses. I just think it's so great. My favorite verse for Mark is in here. Um, I just read it to him the other day. Get to it. There. It's in the very last chapter of the making of many books. There is no end and much study wearies the body. (laughs) I read that to Mark last week and he goes, Amen. <laughs> so it's 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 a it's a book that I think is filled with uh, a sense of sarcasm, divine sarcasm to get a key point across. The term Hevel has many connotations, all of them negative: absurdity, frustration, futility, nonsense, emptiness, meaninglessness, vapor, breath. That's what it means. So. He starts off by saying, everything is meaningless, completely, utterly, totally worthless. That's the beginning. That's his thematic statement. So it has the idea of a passing vapor, which is insubstantial and transitory. But the very heart of the argument is it warns against a life caught in the pursuit of the absurd. That's really what the uh, author is arguing, that he's warning against a life caught in the pursuit of the absurd and the empty pleasures that have no lasting value. What he's really arguing is that life without God is meaningless. It has no lasting effect. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Louis L'Amour. Read every one of his books probably at least five times. I get a lot of my theology from Louis L'Amour. If you've read his books, you will recognize some of them from time to time. And uh, I also get a lot of my theology from uh, Alexander Ken, who writes uh, dramatic fiction, historical fiction of the British Navy in the 18th and 19th centuries. And uh, I've read his series. He's got like 30 books in the series, probably at least five times. Get a lot of my theology out of there because theology should fit with life. And uh, so we should look at artings and paint work, uh, paintings and artwork. And we should read fiction. We should look at all kinds of stories, poetry, and we should see theology reflected. If, if it's not reflected, it's not real theology. 
that's his life. So what does he say? He said, a person's life, when they die, is, has the same effect as when you stick your finger in the water and pull it out and you have a momentary ripple and it's gone. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. That's how much impact you have in life and that's how much you leave. So we like to spiritualize it and romanticize it. Well, they live on in our hearts. That's true. I mean, after your generation, they're no longer alive. They're gone, right? It's amazing how we try to, you know, we try to spiritualize things that we're frightened of. So uh, this person, they lose their identity. That's true. They're gone. Unless you have some means of really remembering them, they disappear from the scene. When Judy died, my first wife, I was immediately struck, surprised by this. Uh, after she died, uh, when we had uh, John or Kathy's birthday party, or birthday, she turned two, I, I sat there and I looked at her and I thought, I'm the only one in the world that knows what happened to her. <laughs> I'm the repository of her story. Because Judy, the other person that was there when she was born, is no longer here. And so we started a tradition in our family where we would tell the story of their birth every birthday. In fact, at holidays, we began to tell stories because I wanted to pass on, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to pass on a tradition of our family that I was the only one that was an eyewitness to. And I wanted to make sure that it got controlled well because, uh, because stories, they tend to do this. That's, and I got that idea from Jewish history because in every little village, the Jews would pick a person. Your job is to make sure we don't embellish the story. You keep us honest. So at every little village, they had a person that that was your job. They were the storytellers. You got paid for it. Your job is to keep us honest because stories em embellish and change and grow. And I love to embellish stories. I mean, that's one of my favorite you know, things to do. And so uh, my son, who was three and a half when his mom died, grew up saying, yeah, my mom always let me, he used this against Nancy when we got married. My mom used to always let me have candy bars and all. Well, you know, Judy had cystic fibrosis. We didn't even have sugar in the house. None. No raw sugar in the house, period. And yet he grew up thinking. So I wanted to tell the story over and over and over again. So he now knows that it's not true, even though he believes it. It's still up here. So I told the story, right? And stories keep traditions alive. Because I didn't want her to disappear out of our family tradition and legend. But the bottom line is, within a generation or two, you're gone. How many stories can you tell of your great-great-grandparents? I know a couple. That's about it. I didn't find out until recently that, there was, that there's murder and suicide in adults in my family. It's like, yeah, it's the all-American thing. You know, I didn't know that. And it was after my mom died and we were digging through old records that, we, that I found that out. And so that's the basic line here is that a life without God is meaningless. What gives it eternal or longevity is a God who does remember what you've accomplished. And so what you've accomplished for his glory will be recorded for all time. Um, Ecclesiastes depicts life and it depicts important aspects of life in ancient Israel. It, the stories in here relate to our experience. They're universal human experiences. So we can all relate to the struggles that are discussed. And basically it goes through and says, I did everything. I had as many women as I wanted, spent all the money in the world that I wanted, got all the pleasures in the world, and my conclusion is it's meaningless. It's all worthless. So you should just sit down and read it sometime. It's very fascinating. Uh, it demonstrates how faith can triumph over doubt. 
And I think that's an important thing to remember. We need to let people fail. That's what he's arguing here. He failed in every way, the author, uh, in every way you can imagine. The drunkenness, the carousing, the women, the pleasures. And what that taught him was what true faith looks like. One of the things that I, when I was, uh, I first started thinking this way when I was a missionary in Germany, soldiers would come to our ministry, our house, and they came in and, uh, and I'd say, tell me your background. You know, they don't know anything about Christianity and I would jump up and down with excitement. Okay, they came for the free meal. Sweet. We'll offer free meals all day long. That's what will get them there. And every now and then we have somebody came, I was raised in a Christian family, and i got to be honest with you, it didn't take me very long to just kind of inside roll my eyes and think, I wish they weren't here. It didn't take me long to begin to despise Christians because they had all the answers, they knew all the rules, and they weren't converted because their life didn't change. In fact, our church was filled with a lot of people like that, come to think of it. And so I began to think through, how in the world can I help these people other than hitting them with a baseball bat? How can I get them to really begin to appreciate your life's not going to change until you really begin to appreciate what God has done? That's going to be the story when we get into the Chronicles in just a moment and the Prophets. One of the, one of the accusations of the Prophets is you don't really know God because if you did, your life would change on a dime. That's that. And so I began to think about it. And so I started taking these young Christian soldiers with me down to uh, uh, aid hospices in uh, Frankfurt. Come on, let's go bathe people that are a week away from dying from AIDS. I want you to see what you avoided. I don't want them to go sin. I want them to have vicarious experience. I took them with me down to the park in uh, Frankfurt where the drug addicts were so we could help out. I started taking the Christians. I didn't need to take the non-Christians. They already knew. They already knew. And it was an eye-opener. It, it just stunned them, those that had been raised in Christian homes. They had no sense, uh, true sense, of where they had turned. That was the only answer I could find. So if I could get our people out into AIDS hospices, our church would never be the same. Ever. And so these are human experiences, and they demonstrate how faith really triumphs in the midst of doubt, because of doubt, and over doubt. So the greatest gift we can give our high schoolers is let them fail. They are going to fail. It's only a question of when. So I've asked several parents, do you want them to fail when you're at home with you and I'm here? Or do you want them to fail when they go to college and when I'm in the room with them? I want them to fail now. I hope and pray they don't get pregnant, but if they do, I hope they do it right now. You know, I hope they don't have a DUI and get drunk, but if they do, I hope they do it right now so we can help them. And that's, that's his argument in here is that I have failed at everything and I now realize how valid and how real my faith is because of that. And so Christians that, uh, that really have their faith tested and learn what that means and fail somewhere along the way, those are the ones that usually get the most excited about their faith. And you can see it. You can see it in their eyes. So it's a powerful message in Ecclesiastes. He talks about wisdom, how worthless it is, pleasures, how empty it is, hard work, advancement, I love that one, wealth, how meaningless it is. The conclusion to the book is in the last two verses. Now that all has been heard, I love that. Now that I've said everything I want to say on the subject, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or not. 
That's his conclusion. That's when it boils down to it, it's very simple. Live your faith. Live it out. And you will you will find it. Parents, I, I think it's interesting, parents are afraid that their when their kids start looking at alternative religions, I encourage it. How do you know how how do you know what you really believe? You know, I I mean for years I dealt with the eighteen year olds in the classroom. And uh, it didn't matter what I believed. It doesn't matter one bit. What do you believe? They don't know what they believe. So go read Hindu literature. Go read I Ching, Buddhism. Go read it. And you're going to find out if you believe it or not. They used to say, well, what about the Gospel of Thomas? You know, how come that's not a gospel? That should be a gospel, too. We have, we have the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we have one of Thomas. And I said, okay, I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah, let me just read it to you. You tell me if you think it should be part of the canon. I'll let you decide. You get to be judges. So I'd always read the last verse. It starts at the very end. And Peter said to Jesus, what about Mary? She's a woman who can't enter the kingdom of God. And he says, I know. So I'm going to change her into a man so she can enter the kingdom of God. It's amazing how quick, boom, they change their mind and how a little more solid their theology becomes. I don't buy that. Hmm. In fact, in the classroom, one of the things I, used to, I, I have done many times is the first day of class, when you walk into a class, usually, you know, hi, I'm Dr. Howard Clark with privilege, blah, 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 blah. And as soon as you get to the Dr. Howard part, we're all going like that. I know how it works. So I walk into the class, set up everything. I just wait. I wouldn't look at him, wouldn't say a word to him. And when the bell rings, I just flip on the overhead. And up comes a verse that says, And God said this, so I'll kill all the men, women, children, and animals. That's what I'd have him read. Very first verse, only verse on the screen. We believe in genocide. We're no different than radical uh, fundamentalist Islam. What do you think we did? Aside from the first 30 seconds of looking around going, wow, we never started a class this way. Then he'd start going, that's not true, Dr. Howard. It is true. We got a Bible, don't you? Look it up. They'd look it up. We'd flip through it. We'd have to see where the first Samuel is, and they'd go find it. That can't be true. It is. We believe in genocide. Kill all the men, women, children, and animals. Everything. Utterly destroy the entire village. We believe in genocide. That can't be true. Don't argue with me. I'm not the one that wrote it. God's the one that wrote it. And they would argue for 30 minutes, and, they, and their argument would get stronger and more emotional without even knowing why, not even having any way of, of dancing around it. At the end of 30 minutes, I'd say, okay, open up your syllabus. No, no, what's the answer? Come back next week. So next week they'd come back, and I'd flip the verse on. Um, if a man rapes a virgin not engaged to be married, he must marry her. He must pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He can't divorce her for the rest of his life because he's dishonored her. We believe in rape. Bible never says don't rape. But there's about 11 or 12 places where God gives rules on what happens if you do rape. So it's okay to rape. We as Christians, we believe it's okay to rape. That's not true. We don't believe you. Look it up in your Bible. What's the answer? Come back next week. And so this is real life. These are the things that are in this Bible right here. They have no clue what to think about it. They could come up with all the pet answers, cat answers that they learn in church. And as soon as you throw a curveball at them, they have no idea what to do with it. And that's when their faith starts to grow. And it was really fun to watch them because they, the faith became theirs without me ever explaining how to take care of this passage. They just knew with absolute conviction that I was wrong. It's no longer their parents. It's now their conviction. And I watched the Christianity go from an opinion begin to move down into a level of conviction. And they were, their conclusion was, I don't know why you're wrong, but you are. 
keys that you use. You own it now. You own it. And that's this message right here. Don't be afraid to try new things. When my kids left home, you've heard me tell the story. Each one of them left home. I told them, I said, go out and have fun. Don't worry about if it's sin or not. If you're not sure, don't try it. It's okay. Just avoid the big stupid things. Don't have drugs. Don't do drugs and die. Don't have sex and get somebody pregnant. Don't get drunk and kill yourself or somebody else. Aside from that, do it. You can trust the Lord. If you're moving in the wrong direction, he knows how to tap you on the shoulder. It's what he did with me my whole life. So don't be afraid to sin. It's okay. Go out and try things. Faith is an exercise in risk, not security. You're stepping into what you don't know. So if, if you do know, then I'd avoid, encourage you to avoid it. But if you don't know, have fun. Try it. And they're like, are you my dad? <laughs> they all went off and did it. They did. And I'm just convinced that this is the argument here. He said, I went off and I tried everything. And it's worth it. It's completely worth it. There's nothing like being on a being in Kentucky visiting your sister and you get a call at 2 in the morning. This is Sergeant so-and-so with a Columbine Valley Police. Oh, boy. I only have one kid left at home. He's 17. So what's going on? He said, I just woke up an underage drinking party at your house. Oh, okay. Great. So uh, tell, me, tell me the story. He goes, I have 23 kids sitting out on the lawn all drunk. And I go, great, now I'm the hero of the neighborhood on top of it. So... Uh, and I, I said, have you called their parents? He goes, yep, yeah, the last one. I called all the parents. And they're all in there. They have to pick them up. And uh, we cited your son. And uh, he has uh, court appearance. He has to go and all that kind of stuff. And So I get back. And I'm, I'm not going to punish my son over it. Um, I don't have to. He's going to learn his lesson. He doesn't need me to pile on top. So I just sat down. I said, what were you thinking? What happened? He said, well, Dad, he said, I had a friend over. And we were shooting pool. And, and I decided, sneak it here. No one will know. And pretty soon, I'm he's somebody's texting somebody, and you know how it works when the whole crowd's over. And uh, I said, oh, and he said, and I have to go to court. I said, yeah, you do. And he said, will you come with me? I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to use this for the world. Are you kidding? And he said, uh, will you stand with me? I said, not on your life. I'm going to be in the gallery, and I'm going to be watching you extricate yourself from this mess. And the judge took him apart. You know what? Never had another issue with that kid. None. Perfect. Nobody died. Perfect lesson. Faith triumphs because of and through failure and experience. That's the message. I've tried everything. He said everything. And it's all worthless. And at the end of, at this part of my life, at this stage, I would agree. And I've done a ton of things. I'm not going to tell you all of them. And that there's a ton. And um, my faith is stronger because of it. So, I think we need to give our kids a little bit of space. By the way, I think we need to give our adults the same kind of space. Um, I would rather you sin openly and blatantly than sin privately and secretly. Because that can happen. I tell the kids at the beginning of every class, the students, that uh, if you're tempted to cheat, don't do it. Don't even do it. You don't have to pray about it. Just no. The answer is no. You know? But if, you, uh, if after that you're still tempted, still don't do it. If, if after that you're still tempted, okay, then you might pray and don't do it. But if you... Still want to do it? Uh, go talk to your pastor, priest, or confessor, whoever you live with in your church, and uh, they'll tell you not to do it. If you do cheat, and God convicts you before I turn in the final grade, I want you to come see me because I know I'm a sending pastor. If God convicts you after I've turned in the final grade, go tell your confessor I don't want to know. I love you just the way you are. I don't have to. 
to know that kind of stuff. It's like, I want to know what my kids did. I'm very happy. Dad, I, I need to tell you what I did 20 years ago. No, you don't. <laughs> Between you and God. If you need a priest, I'll get you one. <laughs> don't tell me. And you know what? It's really interesting how many times over the years I have students come to me and say, I cheated on my test. You did. Tell me about that. Why would you do that? And uh, so, well, you're going to get an F on your test. And uh, here's what I want you to do. So our counseling, for instance, my counseling major, she came forward and said I cheated. And they said, okay, so you get an F. And that means you can't pass a class. You don't have to do any additional assignments. I want a 20-page paper. The only people you had to write in class was Tim's on government. I want a 20-page paper where you're analyzing the law dealing with ethics. Tell me why I did that. Because if you want to cheat, that's an ethics violation, so you need to understand the ethics of it. Okay, well, I don't want you to cheat a second time. So uh, she did. It's really funny because we're, uh, I still know her. She reminds me of times I remember that. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Fantastic work. I'm glad you liked it. I want those people, I'd rather people send blatant messages where you know what to do than cheekily. That's a message of Ecclesiastes. Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is a very controversial book. It's, uh, if you've never read it, um, it's worth reading. It's very worth reading. It's one of the most graphic, sexually, it's the most graphically, graph, sexually graphic book in the Bible. No question about it. In fact, throughout Jewish history, the young males weren't allowed to read it until they'd gone through bar mitzvah uh, because of its sexual nature. I mean, it discusses everything from anatomy to, believe it or not, uh, oral sex and all kinds of things are written in there. It's very descriptive, very descriptive. The purpose is to communicate, I think, the excitement and celebration around love that's shared between young lovers who are created in God's image. That's its purpose. Uh, it's called the Song of Songs, which means it is the very best song ever written. It's like Lord of Lords. It's, you know, you have a bunch of lords, but you have one lord, God of gods, King of kings, Song of Songs. This is the very best, most powerful song. The problem with it is that it, util- it uses all of these metaphors that we don't make understand. They don't make sense in our world. Chapter 4, verse 1, your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep. Your neck is like the Tower of David. I just think it's hilarious. I, I, I did a little bit of this when I was in Germany with other young soldiers, so they decided to write their own song, song of songs. <laughs> so, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats. So they rewrote this. Your eyes are like stars. There's space behind them. <laughs> your teeth are like petals, bicycle petals. <laughs> It's so funny. I only heard it once in a skit, and I and it got locked in, and I remember it. These guys were brilliant, these young soldiers, how they, they did a parody of this. This is language that's foreign to us. But you got to understand, in a world where you don't have newspapers, newspapermen, uh, TV, you don't have any media at all, all you have is what is in your world, uh, which is a whole lot simpler than what we have here. How would you, how would you find metaphors to describe beauty, for example? You know, I don't know what it's like to see a flock of goats or sheep on a hillside. I'm not a rancher. But to these people, this was their livelihood. This was their wealth. This was their, this was their world. And they look out there and they see this. Somehow I could picture a little bit green, you know, with blue skies and, and a bunch of white sheep. And they say, hey, there's a, there's a way I could describe to my wife how beautiful she is. And so it's very strange for us to read it. 
But when you go down there and read it, I mean, it starts to get graphic. In chapter 4, verse 5, your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among, that, that browse among the lilies. And uh, you, get, you keep going, and it's like, man, oh, man, it gets more <laughs> and more graphic, okay? Um, the Well, I won't do any more. You can read it if you want. It's just a very, it's a very emotional, very passionate, poetic book of, of ways to look at love, physical pleasure and genuine, true love. This is written in a time when the overwhelming majority of men were involved in polygamy. I mean, Solomon, if it was Solomon, had a thousand wives and concubines. That doesn't mean he didn't he slept with a different woman every day. What that means is that's part of the economic system. He married all these women to care for them. And, uh, and he did. And they, they led him astray. That's one of the sad things about Solomon. It didn't, didn't end well. But this is a time when men had all kinds of things going on. You read the stories of uh, Isaac and, Re- uh, you know, you had Rebecca and um, Leah. And, and they're bargaining with each other on who gets to have sex with their husband longer. And uh, so he comes home. He's going into one tent. And she says, uh, sorry, I traded sex, the, our sex, my sexual favors for this. And he goes, oh, and diverts to the other tent. I mean, you get a picture of what life is like in a polygamous marriage by reading these things. And this is one of those books early on that begins to champion in very powerful ways God's intention that it be one man and one woman. That's the point. And how rich that is when you have yourself dedicated to uh, a person. Nancy and I joke and we laugh. Um, and you, most of you know me, uh, you know, what I'm like. And I tell Nancy, you know, chemistry is an odd thing. I can't really control who I fall in love with. I can't control who I'm committed to and who I sleep with. So uh, I, have, I have lots of women friends and she has lots of guy friends. That's really fun. And uh, neither one of us ever worry about it because we are dedicated 100% to each other. And there's no question about it. Neither one of us struggle with jealousy. And so how to put in the right controls to develop even a deeper relationship that goes beyond what you ever experienced is what's at the heart of this. And what's at the heart of this is early in, the, in world history, when the world hadn't even thought about monogamy, you got this book. Talk about a gift from the Lord. What he's saying is, you want to know, you want to really experience true joy? Here it is. Right here. And for those of you that are early in your marriage, Nancy and I just passed 31 years. Some of you here, I'm sure, have been longer. But <coughs> my advice is hang in there. Just hang in there. We're having the best time in our we've ever had in our marriage now. Because you're grown. That's happening. We have money. You know, because the kids are all on their own. And, and we're having the time of our lives. We just so enjoyed being together. And it was really hard. There was a lot of hard times in our marriage where, honestly, we just survived through it. That's all we did was just survive. Let's just get through it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like middle school. Middle school is only meant to be a memory. So it only serves one purpose, to be a memory. You know, how else are you going to get from elementary school to high school? There's only one way. It's terrible, you know. Well, there's times in marriage like that. Just get through it. And so if I could encourage you, just hang in there. Because the real fruit doesn't come until later. You experience some of it now. And what you, what you read in here is a picture of the initial excitement of love that you all felt at one time, and then it disappeared. I get it. But then it comes back. Down the road. 
And so it's a fantastic story. It's a picture of what intimacy looks like without shame, without disgrace, if you will. Um, It's a picture of what God intended in the garden. So a lot of scholars say you should read this with what they call Edenic lenses. Put the lenses of the garden back on and read it. And it's an ideal picture of marriage. And if that's the way they put the picture in, it gives you a glimpse. There's been a lot of controversy, not controversy, a lot of discussion down through the church history about whether this relates to, um, (coughs) whether it's also a picture of God's love for us. I think it actually serves both purposes. I think it also is a description of God's relationship with us ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And we haven't even begun to taste that yet. We just have just a glimpse, just a glimpse of, of what's coming. Because the words that are often translated in the English translation, they fade. Okay, that's the word for uh, sexual fulfillment, really. So in the golden calf, the golden bowl, when they made the golden bowl, remember that story? It said they played. What that means is they were involved in orgies. That's really what it means. Or when um, Isaac and Rebecca, he told, uh, um, he told uh, Rebecca, lie and tell him that I'm your sister or you're my sister. Otherwise, they're going to kill me. And the king looks out one day and he sees them playing. What that means is they were, they were involved sexually. And he goes, that ain't brother, sister type stuff. Okay? And so those words are, are, dis- are used in various places to describe our relationship with God in its ultimate setting. That's how fulfilling it will be. So in my, my sense, this, this gives us a realistic picture of monogamy done well and ultimately of what's coming in the world to come. So that's all I'm going to say. The themes have to do primarily with sexual pleasure and the institution of marriage and God's love for us. By the way, stop me anytime if you have any questions. On to First and Second Chronicles. Okay. First and Second Chronicles begins to tell the story of the, uh, it continues the story of the God's people, the wheels coming off, everything falling apart. So, First and Kings, Second Chronicles, right in here, they tell this story. Let's go back one. Okay, First Second Samuel tells the story of Saul and David, and First Chronicles tells the story of David. When you get to uh, First Second Kings and Chronicles, where we are tonight, we're now with Solomon, um, and we're at the height of the glory, and it begins to chronicle, hence the word chronicles, all the way through. It goes all the way through to the end when the both nations cease to exist. So after Solomon died, he uh, there was rebellion, and the, the nations broke up. Ten kings went with the northern kingdom called Israel. Two, two tribes, I mean. Ten tribes went with the northern kingdom. Two tribes went with the southern kingdom called Judah. And uh, the northern kingdom lasted till the end, toward the end of the 8th century when they were destroyed by the Assyrians. It was a brutal destruction. The Assyrians, they, they were not kind in any sense of the word. Rape, pillage, destroy was basically their motto. And uh, they predicted, God predicted that that was going to happen. And uh, they slaughtered them all. And the ten tribes ceased to exist. They were carried off and they never came back. They, we never saw them again. Hence, you hear some of the stories about the lost ten tribes and that sort of thing. But that, uh, from a biblical perspective, they came to an end. The southern kingdom lasted longer, and we're going to talk about why. But they came to an end, but it didn't end. They were sent into exile. The exile lasted about 50 years, and God brought them back. So tonight, we're in the 8th century. 
So we're looking at 1st, 2nd Kings, 2nd Chronicles, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, and Jonah. These were all written at this period of time. Amos and Hosea were written to the northern kingdom. Isaiah and Micah written to the southern kingdom. Jonah was written to Nineveh, who was the, the uh, capital of the Assyrian nation. So it's interesting that God sent a prophet to the Assyrians. <laughs> That's just an amazing thing. That's what they did. So just to put it back in perspective, this is where the Iliad and the Odyssey were written here. Carthage was founded in Greece. Uh, Greeks began using papyrus back here, which went to about 300 A.D., and they quit using it there. So that just gives you a sense of what was going on in the world around them. So we're going to take a look at these, um, these, these books briefly. So um, let me get to First and Second Kings. What did I do with First and Second Kings? Okay, short break. Okay, what, what I did with all those handouts, by the way, was um, I gave you a kind of an outline of the book and the theme and purpose, so you could take notes if you want to. It's up to you uh, on what you want to record. But let me just give you kind of an overview of what's happening with First and Second Kings. Together, they chronicle, they outline about four centuries of the history of Israel. So they cover about four centuries. First Kings tells the story of Solomon's great kingdom and the early history of the divided kingdom. Second Kings outlines the rest of Israel's history to the end. And these books, they trace the failure of the nation to maintain their covenant with God and their refusal to be faithful. Now, if you've ever read these books and you read them right in order, when you do like when you read your Bible, they sound an awful lot alike, don't they? Didn't we just read about this king? Didn't we just read about this Assyrian? So I wanna, I'm going to talk about First Kings. And then when I get into Chronicles, I'm going to talk about the differences because what the authors highlight has to do with what they're trying to accomplish. So when it comes to First and Second Kings, 
there are several key themes that stand out which we don't see in Chronicles. And you're going to see the opposite story in Chronicles. One of those is what we think of when we think of retribution theology. Retribution theology is you go to the wolf. Screw up, expect it. That's what's going to happen. So in First and Second Kings, I'm not going to go through all the kings and all that kind of stuff. You can, you can read that if you want. The author is, and I'd encourage you to, the author is concerned with the theology of retribution based on the Sinai covenant. The covenant he made with Moses at Mount Sinai. That is the standard by which he can begins to compare every king. He's concerned to show that obedience to God's command brings blessing, while disobedience brings failure. That's a, that's a very important part of their history, the Old Testament history before Christ comes. Things begin to change when Christ comes on the scene. And so God is illustrating through their failure and a historical perspective of what happens if you don't have grace of the, and the need for grace. So when Jesus comes along, what does he do? Jesus comes along and he raises the bar to the uh, level of perfection or impossibility in every, every place he talks about life. He raises it to an impossible standard. So um, you've heard it said not to commit adultery. I tell you, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery. That means that every guy here in the room is guilty of adultery. I don't know about the women. I'm not a woman. So but every guy is. You know, if you hate somebody, you've committed murder. Every Probably everybody in this room has committed murder. Not to swear by oaths, all those things. He just goes right down the list. Then he does interesting things like it's easier for a, um, um, a rich man, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. What that means is it's impossible. Now, he doesn't define what rich is. I'd like to think it's everybody in this room that makes more than me. So I have a shot. Okay. But it means it's impossible. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a possibility in any way. You can't twist the words to make sense of that. Paul comes along and makes sure we get it. He said, don't you know that adulterers and murderers and those who cause dissension and strife and arguments and all those, well, that's all of us, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to do that. So, so the disciples asked the appropriate question when Jesus taught this. Well, then who can be saved? That's the right question to ask. And uh, Jesus said, with humans it's impossible but with God all things are possible and so when Jesus comes on he begins to redesign if you will um, redemption and salvation history so we're in this period of time right now when the way they're thinking is you obey God you're blessed you disobey God you'll uh, that's a failure we know that's not completely true because of Job so as a general rule, almost like the prophets, it is true. If you follow God's way, life's a whole lot better for you than if you don't. Um, history is the foundation upon which he uses to base his theology. Look what happened through the kings. That's a good example. Then there's another theme, what, what they call the regnal formula or the formula of the kings. So First and Second Kings goes through a whole series of, he, he does the same thing. I'm going to give you an example in First Kings 15. He follows the same pattern over and over again to highlight the kings. So this uh, first Kings uh, 15 is the story of Abijah. So the first thing he does, he gives an introductory statement. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijah became king of Judah. He reigned in Jerusalem three years. His mother's name was Makah, daughter of uh, Abishalom. So he gives you an introductory statement. Here's the facts. Then he gives you an evaluation. Very next verse, he committed all the sins his father had done before him. 
his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David, his forefather, had been. So he gives you an evaluation, and the evaluation is always against David. That's the pattern all the way through. Then he gives you a reference to the Chronicles in verse 7. He says, uh, as for the other events of Abijah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? That's Chronicles. So you can go there to find other stuff. But he gives you a reference. And then he talks about the death and the burial and the successor. In verse 8, Abijah rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, and Asa, his son, succeeded him as king. That's the formula all the way throughout from First and Second Kings. So he starts off with an introductory statement. He gives you an evaluation of the king. He gives you a reference that goes through the Chronicles, and uh, he always uh, he talks about the mother as well. But he evaluates him in terms primarily of David, and then he talks about the death, burial, and successor. The evaluation typically involves um, comparison to King David because King David is the ideal king in the minds of the Jewish people. So the author of Kings is always comparing him against David. The, uh, those who failed are typically compared to King Jeroboam I, who committed the, the, some of the most vile acts in Israel's history. Uh, he epitomized rebellion and disregard for God. The author's primary concern is to evaluate covenant faithfulness and loyalty to God, not political prowess. He doesn't care about what's accomplished on the political scene. All the way through, he's giving you a record of the kings that failed and those that succeeded and what they did. He gives little attention to the political achievements of the various kings. Uh, that's not what his goal is. It doesn't matter to him. The author, reveal, he reviews the kings of both Israel and Judah, so the nation is divided. So he must have witnessed the fall of the southern kingdom for him to go all the way to the end. So he's writing after the fact, uh, whether he used historical sources, we don't know, but he's recording the history of the kings. Here are the good kings, here are the bad kings. Boom. And what that meant. Um, he consistently evaluates history from the perspective of a sovereign God, not political accomplishment. So one of his themes is to show uh, that there is a sovereign God who oversees all this and he's taking action every step of the way, but at the same time showing grace and making allowance because he's allowing these evil kings to happen. The Assyrians, he argues, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. The Babylonians, they destroyed the southern kingdom, destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, took everybody away captive. So his argument is that they were only able to do what they did because God permitted it. Israel's failures, both politically and militarily, were due to a lack of covenant loyalty. Covenant loyalty is very important. Um, all the way through the history of the Old Testament. It's very critical. And God did in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy put that out there. If you obey me fully, this is what I'm going to do. And if you don't, this is what I'm going to do. Why did he do that? And why doesn't he do that today? He did it because Paul is going to argue later on that, um, that the law was there to um, to expose sin, if you will. It's there to make sin become real. Later on, he says, he says, how would I have known it was wrong to sin if the law had not said, do not covet? What that means is God is complicit in our sin at some level. So in the garden, if God had never said, don't eat of that tree, they never would have sinned. They couldn't. They could have eaten on it, but they wouldn't have sinned. They can only sin when it becomes a law. God says not to. So the moment God does that, 
then he makes it possible for us to sin. And so uh, all the way through there, through the Old Testament, that is a message that's being proclaimed, but we begin to see snippets that that's going to change with Christ and his death. And so Paul argues that's what the purpose of the law is. He uses the imagery of a tutor, the tutor to lead us to Christ, but it's there to expose sin. That's its purpose. Not because God is some sadistic God up there. It's because God wants us to realize that apart from him, we have no hope. That's really what he's arguing. And Jesus took that, that movement and took it to the ultimate logical extreme. There is not one single thing you can do. Isaiah said 500 years earlier that every one of your works is like filthy rags to the Lord. There is not a single thing that commends you to God. Nothing. And that's the argument, and he's highlighting that. That's the whole reason for doing that. And showing grace. Shows a lot of grace for the people that can't, aren't able, which is every human, not able to complete the law. He shows a lot of grace. Who he, who he really goes after are those that shake their fists at him and sin deliberately, blasphemously, rebelliously, and say, the hell with you. That's the one he goes after. Because woven all throughout these stories, when he's talking to the people that are sinning out of weakness and trying to do it, he shows incredible grace, hope, love, all the way through. That is his pattern. So I think the reason why it's, it's set up this way is to illustrate the impossibility. It's impossible. Don't be deceived. On your very best day, on your very best moment, you fail. And you need grace. And God highlights that, not to be sadistic, so that he would, he can say, I'm going to love you anyway and show you grace so you'll appreciate it. So you can only understand grace if you understand the degree to which we are fallen and broken people. So that's why Jesus took the argument to the inside. <clears throat> the moment you get mad at somebody, Paul says if you're guilty of one thing, you're guilty of the whole law. The moment one thing happens that reveals our complete inability to please God. So now we're back to the Ecclesiastes. Okay, one of the questions I get, what about people that do good all the time? Well, that's, that's an inclination, I think, that comes from image bearing, but it's worthless. It doesn't mean anything. Who's the one that assigns value to the works that you do? God's the only one that can. I mean, we can assign it to each other, but after you die, what I think doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I think after you die. And so when you put all this theology together, it's not a hopeless situation. It's just the opposite. It feels hopeless because there's not a thing you can do. But it's not hopeless because we have a God who does something about it. And that's what he's trying to pitch there. Let me say a couple things about First and Second Chronicles. We're really only talking about First Chronicles, but I'm going to include both of them here and just give you an overview. Um, this is written about a century or more after First Kings. Okay, so the author probably had First and Second Kings as a, a template, if you will, a historical document of which to use. So it's about a century after that. The circumstances of God's people has improved very little. The exile has ended. Uh, many faithful Jews have returned to Jerusalem from Babylon and other parts of the world. However, the Messiah didn't come. Didn't all the prophets say that as soon as the, the uh, exile was over, that um, the Messiah would come? 
the Messiah would come to end the exile. By the way, um, when you read the parables, like the parable of the the son who squanders, the prodigal son who squanders his wealth, he goes off, right, squanders his wealth. Uh, A very common, and I happen to really like this interpretation of that, is that that person represents Israel or the people of God. They went off and squandered their wealth at the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. They were exiled. And at one point he comes to his senses and he comes back. The exile has ended. And, uh, and so they thought that the Messiah would come and end the exile and they would be restored as a nation. The exile ended when Christ came. That's why I use that parable. So uh, the people of God are not exiled anymore. They've been restored. They've been returned to him. And so this is written at a time they've already come back, but the exile didn't, or the Messiah didn't appear. So the small population in Jerusalem, and it was pretty small, that they felt pretty discouraged and lost. They wrestled with the question, has God forsaken his covenant? What about the promises he made to David? Did they fail as well? I mean, they, they show there's no evidence that God is fulfilling his promises. So the author of the Chronicles is writing in that context. And he's going to review history, the history of Israel, in order to trace God's covenantal promises. So he's going to go through the same history of the kings, but he's going to highlight something very different. So he's going to go through the broken history of the defeated nation, and he's going to argue for hope in God that he has not forgotten his people or his promises. Okay, now, it doesn't take too much to connect the dots to the New Testament. Emmanuel, God with us. God remembered his promises, right? So what does Jesus say at the at communion, the Last Supper? Jesus remembrance of me. So this book represents one of the earliest commentaries, if you will, to Chronicles, because he's reflecting on the kings. He's looking at first and second kings, and he's giving us a theological evaluation of what happened with the nation. So it represents a commentary, much like we would have have in my office. The readers already knew the history and the failures of their nation because they had access to Samuel and Kings. The author, therefore, doesn't not he doesn't remind them of their failures. For instance, he never says anything about David sinning with Bathsheba in Chronicles. He doesn't mention uh, Adonijah's attempt to usurp the throne. He doesn't bring up Solomon's apostasy and turning away from the Lord. So all the major failures of Israel are missing in the Chronicles because that's not what his goal is. They already knew that. They're already discouraged. So why remind them? Yeah, yeah, you have a right to be discouraged. I mean, your whole history is one of failure. <laughs> that's not what he does. He focuses instead on the magnificence of David and Solomon's reign. He highlights the really good things. So he traces the history of the nation in terms of faith and salvation. He traces a straight line through those four centuries of trust, where trust is demonstrated along the way. And he omits where trust is not, with very little attention to that. He avoids any any detraction or, or distraction or detour from that journey because he really wants them to to uh, focus on the victories of their heritage heritage and assure them of triumphs in the future he's trying to rebuild their hope because they're discouraged does that make sense so when you read them you read all the same names and everything it all looks the same but when you begin to put them side by side the pictures are very different very different so these, these two books, First and Second Kings, are fundamentally a statement of faith that God's promises are true and reliable, and we can trust them. Even the failures reveal God's covenant promise. 
or as Paul would later conclude, though we are faithless, he remains faithful. He sums up the entire Old Testament in one sentence. Though we are faithless, he remains faithful. So the author of, of the Chronicles is highlighting, look where God appeared all the way throughout here in the midst of, they already knew their failures, they didn't have to remind them, to show them God is trustworthy, we can count on him. God still has a plan for Israel's future. Jerusalem at this stage is poor, it's destitute, it's nowhere near the glorious city that it, it was before. But he's saying, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. God is still in charge. God is still at work among his people. He has not forgotten his promises. This is the story of the New Testament. That's the whole story of Emmanuel. God with us. That's what it means. So you have one, you have the kings and Samuel highlighting the historical record with all the failures. A hundred years later, you have Chronicles going back and reflecting on that and not talking about the failures, but highlighting, look where you see God in the middle of this. It's really things that we do today in life, don't we? It's one of the things I do with people, especially people come that are discouraged and hopeless and feeling desperate about things, uh, is to pause and say, well, let's, I mean, the, the reality is what we're doing is things aren't as, never as bad as they seem. Let's take a moment and look, and let's see what's happening. That's what church leaders do all the time when you go through a bad experience. Let's pause and see where God was in the middle of this. And that's what the author of Chronicles does, is highlighting God's faithfulness all the way through this. Does that make sense? So when you put them side by side, uh, they have two different purposes. Okay, thoughts, comments, that's a lot of material that we just covered in a very short period of time. Now, what was coming? Right. So, yes. Right. And there are other documents which we don't have. When you read through there, they'll refer to several other documents. So I don't want to make it exclusive for Chronicles because they had other sources, uh, records that didn't survive. So help you see it. But it's pretty fascinating when you put them side by side and look at what the authors really are attempting to do and the way they tell the story. I mean, storytelling is about creating uh, an ethos. It's one of the cultures about communicating a moral a point, the reason why we tell the story that we do, stories. So if, if, if you listen to people that, when they talk about their lives, one day they'll, they'll tell the story, they'll tell it very differently the next day. It's not that they're lying, they're highlighting a different emphasis in it. And that's what's happening here between them. When you read them straight through, it's just, you end up having to have a cup of coffee to stay awake. I get it. So hopefully this will give you a reason to go back and say, I need to pay a little more attention to, huh. Chronicle is doing something really wonderful here. Okay, let's jump into some of the prophets. Let's start with uh, Amos. Um, Amos worked among the sheep herders of Tekoa. That's what it says in the very beginning. A small town in Judah. Judah is a southern kingdom. Okay, Israel's a northern kingdom with ten tribes. Judah's a southern kingdom. So he lives and he works in the, in the southern kingdom, about 10 miles outside of Jerusalem. He earned his living two predominant ways. He was a sheep herder, 
but he also uh, tended sycamore trees. He's kind of like a part-time uh, Tim Glasgow, you know, takes care of trees. And uh, some of the sycamore trees that grew in Israel produced figs, and so the growers would hire these people to go along and pierce them shortly before harvest that apparently helped them to ripen better and more full and taste better. And so he was a part-time tender of sycamore trees on top of that. He grew up in Judah, so what did God do? He sent him to prophesy in Israel. <laughs> God is always, always throwing in twists and turns that we cannot anticipate. All right, think about that. How long in a small town, how long does it take for a foreigner to come and be accepted? Any small town in the country. Are they accepted right away? No. Sometimes it takes generations before they're accepted, right? So God takes a foreigner to go to the northern kingdom. Takes a southern boy and sends him up north over there to the kingdom. Well, sure enough, let me get over to Amos here. Um, yeah, we haven't gotten to Jonah, but that's what he did. Jonah's, Jonah makes me laugh, but it makes me think, thank God it wasn't me. <laughs> to the capital of the Assyrians. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So um, the Israelites looked at him, obviously, with suspicion. And so that's who God sent. Um, and yet in spite of this, he performed his ministry faithfully. He called Israel, the northern kingdom, he called them to repent of their sin and establish justice as the law of the land. We're going to find that theme present in every prophet. Social justice. The one sure way you can tell that a nation is losing its spiritual focus as when they quit taking care of the poor and they quit caring about the poor. That is a dead giveaway. Every prophet highlights that. Every one of them. So um, he wasn't very popular. Well, none of the prophets were, but he wasn't pro popular. He teaches and he prophesies that God desires his people to love him and they will demonstrate that by loving their fellow citizens. That's how you know. Uh, I think some of you heard me tell this story. Um, people come and have coffee with me, and one of the questions I get is, uh, how do I deepen my walk with the Lord? Uh, that's a great question, isn't it? What's the standard answer? Well, read your Bible more, pray more, and all that. Uh, that's not my answer. So uh, when the people ask me that question, I say, well, let's do a little diagnostic work, and let's figure out what's keeping you from going closer to the Lord. Because as a believer with the Spirit, your natural inclination is to move toward the Lord. So if you're not moving toward the Lord, that means there's something in the way. So I'll ask questions like, you know, are you, uh, are you involved either man or woman? I don't care what your sex is. Are you involved either man or woman in an inappropriate way? Uh, it's okay if you are. I mean, that's human. We can work through that. And it's like, you know, one, there's one guy who said no, no. I said, okay. Are you, uh, are you doing anything that would constitute kind of an addictive thing? Are you, are you doing more and more pornography, more and more drinking? Are you got drugs going on, everything like that? Nope, not have that. And I said, okay. Are you, uh, are you greedy? <laughs> he said, I don't know. How would I know if I'm greedy? And I said, well, when you look around you at all that God has given you, there are several things that should float to the surface naturally. One is gratitude. You should be grateful. Number two is joy. You know, Paul says in 1 Timothy, to enjoy the blessings that God has given you. So there should be gratitude. There should be joy. You get to go down and buy a new TV, you know, or whatever you want to buy. A third thing is that you recognize that God has blessed you so that you can bless others and you have a growing compassion and love for those who don't have what you have. He said, 
I definitely don't have that. I said, okay, maybe that's it. I don't know. I'm not, I have my own mirror to look in. You have your mirror. And uh, he said, I don't think that way at all. I don't. He said, my natural tendency is, you know, give the poor people a chance and they'll take care of themselves. I'm not going to help them out. I said, maybe that's it. So go home and talk to your wife and pray about it. So he comes back about a month later. And he said, I've become greedy. I said, sweet. Okay, now we know what the problem is. <laughs> and he said, um, do you know of a family that has need? And I said, yeah, actually, I know of several. And uh, he said, well, can I give you an anonymous gift that you would give to a family? I said, sure. He gave me a thousand bucks. So I gave it to him. The family I gave it to doesn't know I'm the one that gave it to him, doesn't know that he's the one that gave it to me because I gave it anonymously to her, right? And it's like, what a great response. So that was like back in October, November. So I went up to him about eight weeks ago. I said, so how's the, how's the spiritual life? And he goes, I'm really excited. I'm reading this and I'm reading that. And it's like, all right, all we did was just some diagnostic work and said, what's keeping you here? What's in the way? And so not caring for, I'm not talking about taking care of them. I'm talking about caring and healing. Not caring for people less fortunate is a sign of the need to mature. You may be an obstacle on the journey. And by the way, if he'd said, oh, no, I, I love the poor people in my life, I'd say, okay, well, do you complain a lot? Here's another one. You know, do you, do you argue and divide? Are you divisive? Go down the list. You can figure those out. So this is what he's arguing. Now, he's prophesying during the reign of the reigns of Jeroboam II up north and King Uzziah in the south. This was a time in Israel's history of great stability and economic prosperity. Things are going really well. Okay, so you're a southern boy heading to the north to tell them that they're sinning against God at a time when life is really good. You want that job? I'm so glad I'm not a prophet. <laughs> and what he's saying is your economic prosperity and the stability that you feel is causing spiritual decay. You don't understand what's about to happen. You are about to get slaughtered by these kings. And they laughed at him. So where is your hope? Is it in the Lord or is it in the United States military? We have 11 nuclear-powered carrier battle groups. Ten of them are deployed in any one time. Where's your hope? Is it in the best technology the world has ever seen, the strongest military around the globe, or is it in God? That's his argument. This relates to us because they were at peace and they had economic success and prosperity. And he's saying, don't be fooled. Your faith is in the wrong place. You're about to get slaughtered. They didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. The way he could evidence and prove their decay, he can't prove it. I remember just thinking, if we obey God, he blesses us. That's what he does in theology. That's what we think. So everything's going well. You must be receiving God's blessing. And he said, the way you can tell is you don't care for the poor people. The rich are getting richer. The poor are getting poorer. The rich are exploiting the poor. The powerful are dominating the weak. Morality means very little. Does that sound familiar? We have some, we're starting to have glimpses of that in our own society, aren't we? And this is a book for us. That's what it is. It's a book for us to remind us, don't be deceived by what you see. God is God, and God will do what God can do. 
Somebody told me once, yeah, but this is Jesus' church. He's never going to let it die. I said, tell that to the church in England or Europe. The ones who caused the Reformation are now less than 3% of all those countries that think this way. We're almost there in our county. 6% identify as Protestant, not even Christian, just Protestant. I mean, we're, we're right on the heels of Europe. God doesn't mind letting a church die. He doesn't mind that at all. He doesn't mind letting a nation die. We see that. What he's most interested in is that people turn to him in faith. Don't be fooled. We have the best and most powerful military of the world, and I'm glad. I've served in it, and I'm grateful, and I tell the Lord I'm grateful, but my confidence is in him. It's in him. That's his argument. So his message, he has several basic points, and I tried to put this on the highlight, uh, on the outline. Number one, Israel is no better than all the other nations. What a surprise. So listen to what he says. Chapter 1, verse 3. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even four, I will not relent. Because she threatened Gilead, blah, blah, blah. Then you say, verse 6. For three sins of Gaza, even four, I will not relent. Because she took captive whole communities. Then verse 9. For three sins of Tyre, even four, I will not relent. Because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom. And goes down through all these nations. Guess who the last one is? Israel. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken in sponsor. So up until that statement, Everybody would probably say, oh, yeah, those, those Edomites, those, the Gazites, of course they're evil. And then he slams it again. He says, guess what? You're in that same group. So one of the basic messages is Israel is no better than the other nations. That's good for us to remember. Position of privilege does not mean we are better. That means we have more responsibility. And there's a big difference. He says Israel is guilty of sin. Hear this word, chapter 3, people of Israel. The word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. And he just goes on and just and just slams them. Then he calls them to repent. I love uh, while I'm still in the, in the, he's confronting them. Chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. He's a sheep herder. You cows. He calls them cows. Isn't that great? You women. And it's the women he's calling the cows. You're really not popular. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. And you say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Women, a little bit of lesson in there. <laughs> I just love this. I mean, he's, he's not already a popular guy, and he's using this kind of language. Wow. He calls on them to repent. Chapter 5, verse 4. Uh, this is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. That's where they put the altar, by the way. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile. Seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. Isn't that great? You're about to be crushed. Seek the Lord and live. And then he says, quit exploiting the poor. Verse 11 of chapter 5. You levy a straw tax on the poor. You impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. 
I'm about to take your blessing away. That's what they said. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes. They deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil. So the proof is not in their economic prosperity, is not in their stability. The proof is that they quit praying for the poor. That's the proof. And that is a lesson we should pay close attention to. I don't know how to do it. I can barely figure out our own accounts. I'm so glad we have a benevolence committee that knows how to do that. As a nation, I don't know what to do. I honestly don't. All I know is I don't hear people, I don't hear people that I believe are offensive talking about caring for the poor. And that really deeply concerns me. Okay, a couple things on, a couple thoughts on Hosea. Hosea, <laughs> oh my goodness, another fantastic book. I'm so glad he didn't call me to be a prophet. Okay? Hosea. The Lord of the Word came, began to speak through Hosea. Go marry a prostitute. <laughs> Go marry a prostitute and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Giblam, and she conceived and bore him sons. He ends up... Uh, she ends up leaving him, ends up with another guy, probably divorces him. So the Lord said to me, chapter 3, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, for they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her back for 15 shekels of silver. He went and bought her back. I can't find... I wish I found more husbands that would just love their wives who aren't doing these things. You know? I mean, this is a, a powerful, powerful statement and metaphor. <laughs> they're, uh, they're part of the Canaanite worship. Baal worship system. Yeah. <clears throat> so, he's speaking to the northern kingdom. So, Hosea and Amos are both prophets to the northern kingdom. He brings God's message of judgment along with future blessings. And his life is the primary example of what adultery looks like, spiritual adultery. So I'm so glad I'm not a prophet. So it gets worse as we move through the prophets. God asks him to do more and more incredible things. Marry a prostitute and love her. She's going to leave you. Don't worry about it. When I tell you, go back and buy her back because that's what I'm doing with Israel. Though we are faithless, he remains faithful. You see how the dots connect all the way through these stories here? So his own life is the primary example. Uh, but the book closes with God's unfailing love. So the themes throughout Hosea are, number one, obviously spiritual adultery. Adultery violates the marriage relationship and it defiles the relationship. For Israel, who is married to God, has forsaken her marriage bond by turning to the other gods. She had joined herself to Baal and other lovers. That's what he says in here. And he's using his own life as an example. So Gomer's unfaithfulness portrayed the spiritual adultery Israel was committing. In the middle of that, um, he talks about the knowledge of God as being very, very important. Being in a relationship with God brings deep and growing knowledge. And so he challenges Israel to know God. That's what he challenges them. 
They opposed God because they did not know him. Listen to this language in Isaiah 4. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There's no faithfulness. There's no love. There's no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Then down in verse 6, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. So the greatest gift we can give people is not confrontation, but a knowledge of God. I serve the risen Lord Savior on my people. I believe. I say that to a person once, you know, that truly educated, intelligent people don't aren't religious. Say, really? I have five degrees, one of them's a doctorate. I believe. I'm not stupid. People need to know about God. They need to know that He created all this. They need to know that He cares for them and He loves them. What we have managed to communicate as a church in America is a judgmentalness. And I'm really trying hard to overcome that and push push the pendulum as far as I can the other direction so that when it settles, it'll settle somewhere in the middle. We do serve a God who's serious about sin. I do agree with that. But I don't have to tell people that. I never met a person committing adultery that uh, didn't know that adultery was sin. That's not their problem. And so the world needs to know about God. They need to have a knowledge of God. They opposed him because they didn't know about him. He goes further and explains that that's the reason why they rejected him, because they didn't know. The third theme is that is God's frustrated love. As Hosea experienced Gomer's unfaithfulness, he began to learn more about God's pain and frustration. He began to experience it. Well, much like you when, you, when you, when you see poor, the poor people and you start to grow in compassion, can you be more compassionate than God? I don't think so. So as you grow in compassion, you begin to get a taste of what God is like, just on a small scale, and and Hosea does it. So he communicates all throughout here that God deeply loved his people, and seeing their adultery just grieved him to no end. And his frustration is exemplified in the tension of sending his own bride into exile. He asks that question, can I do that? You know, can I actually do this, send them into exile? And um, when you get over to chapter 11, um, chapter 11, verse 8, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admiral? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. My compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate you again. For I am God, and I'm not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come among your cities. And so you see is passion winning out so uh, he's asking the question how can I turn you over I can't do that right just like Hosea couldn't give his wife up I can't let you go powerful powerful language so he comes back to his bride over and over and over again and he doesn't abandon her and so in Hosea 14 his love will prevail this is the last chapter return Israel to the Lord your God your sins have been your downfall Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all of our sins. Receive us graciously. Assyria cannot save us. Then he says in verse 4, I will heal their waywardness and I will love them freely. My anger is turned away from me. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like the cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like the cedar of Lebanon. 
People will dwell again in the shade. They will flourish like the grain. You see, it goes on and on. And he's just talking about how much he loves his bride. He can't let them go. As as frustrated as he communicates, the end message is, I can't let you go. I can't. And that's just a powerful message that we should do well to remember. Okay, we'll pick up the other prophets next week. No, no, no. Next week, no class. That's on your schedule. No, it's not on your schedule. I'm telling you there's no class. I'll send an email. My grandmother, uh, her 100th birthday is next week. Two months ago, I went to see her because we didn't think she was going to make it. 100th birthday is next Wednesday. So I'm flying out Tuesday. My brother and I are, uh, and my sister, both my brothers and I, we play guitar, so we're, all three are going to sing to her for her birthday. So no class next Wednesday.